even though that the following meditative absorptions might not be part of your practice in this retreat, although there's no reason why not, but it's anyway possible that they're not going to be the practice that you will be able to do. I still want to continue with the um, explanation and enumeration that the Buddha gave of all the meditative absorptions because, first of all, it's not very likely that you will hear them anywhere else nor that you might even read them by yourself unless you get the discourses of the Buddha and uh, in them you can find them. But of course they're not as uh, explicitly explained. I have read them to you so you know how far the explanation goes. I think it's important to know what the meditative mind can do and where it leads to, even if only the first few steps are taken. It's important to have a description of the whole roadmap. And then getting back to the point where one is at and keeping on with one's own journey. So we have had, we've heard about the first three meditative absorptions and now comes the fourth one. Again, with the abandonment of pleasure and pain and with the disappearance of previous joy and grief, he reaches and remains in the fourth jhana, a state beyond pleasure and pain, purified by equanimity and mindfulness. Now, that's not to mean that one has had pain while having the jhanas or grief. Sometimes people think that that's what is meant, but it's not. What is meant is that all the emotions at that time are left behind. Pleasure and pain, joy and grief, it's all left behind. And it's a state beyond those, so it is called equanimity and mindfulness. Mindfulness is always a word that we can substitute with one-pointedness, which makes it much clearer what happens in the meditation. And equanimity is actually that which results from having been in the fourth jhana. What one experiences from a practical standpoint is stillness. And at that time, the mind cannot and will not and should not say, this is equanimity, because that would, of course, take one out of the stillness. I like to compare it. The third and fourth jhana with a well 
when we are in the third jhana, we might compare that to sitting on the edge of the well and letting ourselves down just a little bit into the well where it is quiet. And to go to fourth jhana, one has to get down that well to the bottom. Now, obviously, on the way there, one is going to be in various stages of stillness. One can also compare it to um, being completely covered by the ocean. But the well might give a better picture of what happens. It's a deepening. In the third jhana, there is already peacefulness. But it's, one can still hear sounds, and uh, although they are muted, they are there. They are not disturbing, unless they are so strong that one gets disturbed by them. But ordinary sound does not disturb. And as one deepens the state of mind, sounds disappear because the mind is totally focused on the stillness. It's utterly and completely still. Now, obviously, there is something that one has really not experienced outside of meditation. Although one has had moments of peacefulness and contentment, one has never been able to have utter and complete stillness of mind outside of meditation. It's just as impossible. The world attacks us. It attacks our senses. We see and hear and taste and touch and smell and think. And even if we just believe that we're just seeing and hearing. The mind has to digest what we're seeing and hearing. So utter stillness is something unknown. A measure of stillness we can experience. This experience has several results in understanding. The first one, and probably the most important one, is that if we really want to have complete stillness, complete peacefulness, the observer has to merge with the observed. Otherwise, one can't get into first jhana. Now, actually... The observer has to merge with the observed for any decent meditation. But in the first three jhanas, the observer can still be standing apart from the experience to some extent. In the fourth, that's not possible. In order to have that experience, the observer has been so diminished that one has the idea that afterwards, that he wasn't there. That's why the best and only description one can give is stillness. The observer has not 
disappeared. That happens in the past moment. But has become so minimal that there is no real knowledge of the observer being there. Now, the observer having merged with the observed means that the self-assertion and the ego support system has been temporarily disbanded. Temporarily for the time of the meditation. This is a reason why many people are afraid to go that deep into meditation because their ego, their self-feeling, their me-thinking is against it. To let go of that me and self, even temporarily, and not completely, but to the point of being utterly still, can, when the mind is not really trained yet, be fearful. And therefore, instead of letting oneself fall into this stillness, one backs out. It's very common. One can try again. doesn't matter. It's like being afraid of the deep end of the swimming pool if one isn't quite sure that one can really swim. And so one tries again. So one has the resulting understanding, if one has been in the force, that complete stillness is only possible if one's self-assertion, one's willing to be, one's wanting to have a position of any kind, is temporarily abandoned. And having had the stillness, one realizes how wonderful it is to have abandoned it. And one becomes even more inclined and eager to abandon it completely. The fourth jhana brings the greatest energy addition to the mind. Now, our minds are usually, for practically everyone, overworked. We think all day and we dream all night. The mind is the most valuable tool in the whole of the universe. There's nothing comparable. And yet, we don't give it a moment's rest. Now, the only time it can have any rest is when it stops thinking, reacting, emoting and noting, and just be. Getting back to its original purity. Obviously, it has glimpses of that in the first three jhanas. But in the fourth one, it actually experiences it, that there's nothing that disturbs. So, doing the fourth one and doing it regularly 
brings more purification and therefore more clarification to the mind, more power of mind. Powerful minds are rare. Most minds go in the pattern that they're accustomed to. They hear things and follow the pattern, or they read things and follow the pattern, or they've been educated to know things and they follow the pattern. To have individual thinking and the power of mind to cut through the unnecessary and extraneous matters is rare. And fourth jhana makes it possible because it gives power to the mind. We can compare that to the body. If we use our body every day, like everybody does, and never put it to rest at night, what's going to happen? We're going to be extremely weak. In fact, we're going to be so weak that after a little while, only a few days without sleep and rest, we're going to be incapable of functioning. Well, with the mind, we still think we are capable of functioning, although we don't give it any rest. The Buddha said that what actually is happening is that we are asleep while awake. And that is what I mentioned yesterday, that we have all the experiences, but we don't understand them. We have all the experiences of impermanence. We have all the experiences of dukkha everywhere. We have all the experiences of that there's nobody there because we cannot find the experiencer, and yet we don't know it. We have the experience without the recognition. And that's what he meant when he said that we are asleep while being awake. And the Buddha is also sometimes called the awakened one. It's another um, epitaph used for the Buddha. So just as the body has to be rested so that it can function properly, in the same way, the mind has to. And I will read to you in a moment what the Buddha has to say about that, how one gains insight, notwithstanding opinions to the contrary. The Buddha's teaching is not a viewpoint and an opinion. He mentioned that many times. The Buddha's teaching is strictly from experience. And because of a powerful mind, he could frame it in such ways that it's accessible to us. So as we have, of course, some rest already in the third jhana particularly, the fourth jhana brings a deep rest and therefore a real and quite um, noticeable contribution to mental energy. Coming out of fourth jhana, if it's done well, one should feel rejuvenated. And quite often, in body and mind, 
particularly, of course, in the mind. It is the, the strength of mind which is addressed there. So we have, on the one side, the strength which we're getting through the rest, and on the other side, we have the insight into the loss of the ego assertion which brings about complete and utter stillness, where nothing happens. Nothing at all. The mind has finally got a holiday. The holidays that we usually take are pretty exhausting, aren't they? This one is really peaceful. Because of this happening, one has a, so to say, taste of what it can be like if one can bring oneself to let go of all ego assertion, which means one has seen through the mistaken view that there is an ego. And one is far more likely to become strong on the path because one has had an inkling what it can be like. This experience of the fourth, fourth jhana brings with it an easier access to equanimity. Now, equanimity is the highest emotion. It's one of the seven factors of enlightenment and it has several levels on which we can experience it. The first level that we can experience it and probably have already experienced it is that when we don't get excited when something happens that we don't like. Either because we think it isn't the done thing and we don't like to feel and look foolish or because we're suppressing, or because we actually have the insight that whatever it is that's happening, in the long run, it doesn't matter. Everything is going to fall apart anyway. So that is a level of equanimity that on all the different counts I've mentioned may be known to us. Then there's the equanimity which is an emotional state which we arouse whenever necessary. And there, the Buddha talked about the five noble powers, the Arya Idis. Arya is noble, and Idi is power. And it is, of course, the same word as in Sanskrit, Siddhi. And the Siddhis are very often used as a description of magical powers. And so at one stage the Buddha was asked, what about cities or idis in Pali? And uh, is that important to have these magical powers? You know, to jump from here to there without doing anything about it and all that sort of thing. And he said, I will tell you the five noble powers. He often did that. 
use the word play. A play on words to change the whole context of the question and answer often happens. And he said they are, that when you see or become aware of something which is unpleasant, before you can react negatively, you look at all its pleasant features. So that equanimity arises. And if you see something or hear something or know something that's very pleasant, you look at all its unpleasant features so that equanimity arises. Now, anything that's extremely pleasant, the unpleasant feature is that it's impermanent. That we don't even have to consider. That we just have to remember. Most people don't. They never remember impermanence. Most people think that they are quite accepting of impermanence, but they'd much rather forget it. Because if we didn't, we'd know it constantly. Because everything that we come into contact with is impermanent. Every single moment of our lives, whether pleasant or unpleasant, is impermanent. So in order to counteract greed, wanting the pleasant, we recognize the impermanence in that pleasant aspect that we have become aware of. And if there's something that's very unpleasant, we recognize in it that there are also lovable features. If it's a person, that person has also dukkha and therefore needs compassion. That person is also looking for happiness and therefore might need help. And if it's a situation, the pleasant part of it is wherever, whenever we encounter it, that it's a learning situation. So instead of becoming irate, angry, negative about the unpleasantness of whatever happens, we recognize the learning situation in it. And that brings about the equanimity at the required time. Now, in order to make it five noble powers, the Buddha said then, and he was practically always repeating his teaching, because he knew how hard it is to remember anything. And people didn't write anything down, and there were no tape recorders at all, so it um, was much more difficult for them to remember. And then he said, to see in the pleasant both sides and to see in the unpleasant both sides immediately, and then for the Arahant, the Enlightened One, to not even have to remember, but to see it without even creating any greed or hate. So, for us, that is a bringing up of the equanimity when required, if we remember to do it. And if we want to practice a spiritual path, that needs to be remembered. Now, that's, one, that's the second kind of equanimity. But then, of course, there's a third kind of equanimity. And the third kind of equanimity is the one that doesn't disappear again. 
because we have become so imbued with impermanence and have it at our fingertips, so to say, all the time and have already reduced our ego assertion to the point where it isn't so much of a bother anymore so that whatever happens, happens. And that's all. And if it is exactly what we wanted, that's fine. And if it isn't what we wanted, that's fine. And that kind of equanimity is based on insight. And, of course, it's reinforced through fourth jhana. Our insights need to have that basis of an imperturbable mind. Without it, it doesn't happen. The Buddha uh, talks about that. I will read that out in a moment. It's a, a hope and a prayer to get insight without having the mind calmed. And I don't know whether hopes and prayers work. One should inquire for those who use them. This is the pathway that the Buddha described. And there's no earthly reason, none, not to follow it. It's impossible to find a reason not to follow this pathway if one is interested in the Buddha's teaching and wants to gain insight. So the reinforcement of equanimity through insight comes through the ability to have utter stillness and experience it. Although we don't call it equanimity at the time of experience, it is that total stillness which does not react. So having that as one's base and foundation and the insight to boot that without ego assertion it's possible, then we can have it at any given time and don't have to work so hard at it. Until then, we have to work at equanimity. So actually, the seven sectors of enlightenment, the last one being equanimity, means both. It means the highest of the emotions and it means the result of the fourth jhana. might be also worthwhile to mention that the far enemy of equanimity is obviously excitement, restlessness, anxiety, but the near enemy is called indifference. And indifference is often used by people to protect themselves from their own emotions because they've had some unfortunate experiences with their own emotions going haywire with their emotions now if one protects oneself against one's own emotions one tries to protect oneself against the negative ones not getting hateful, angry, upset but what one does actually is with that protection, one protects oneself against all one's emotions. So indifference does not have loving-kindness or compassion within it. It's impossible. If one is indifferent, one has built, so to say, a wall around one. One isn't going to be um, involved 
involvement has turned out several times already as a situation which was not desirable, so one wants to stay out of it. It's possible, but it also closes the heart. And this is one of the things that one can find in the sleeping method, that if one has very little or no a sensation in the chest area, one may get nearer to the truth there by finding that there is a sort of blockage or like a brick wall, sometimes like cement, sometimes like it's like cardboard, anything that seems to be unnaturally hard within. That's the blockage we put, the armor we put around ourselves in order to protect ourselves from unfortunate reactions. Indifference looks very similar to equanimity, and therefore it's called the near enemy, because it's not so easy to distinguish. For others, very difficult, and for oneself also. One might think that one is quite above all these excitements, and then finds that the loving aspect of oneself is not really developed. So there's a great difference between having equanimity through insight and having indifference through protection. Equanimity through insight does not put a blockage to loving-kindness and compassion. On the contrary, loving-kindness and compassion can flow much easier because there is no wanting anything in return. There's no expectation of result. It just flows. So this is also um, an important aspect to investigate whether one has any uh, difficulty with indifference. Now that goes on to describe the fourth jhana the former true but subtle sense of equanimity and happiness vanishes, and there arises a true but subtle sense of neither happiness nor unhappiness, and one becomes one who is conscious of the true but subtle sense of neither happiness nor unhappiness. So, what is being said here is that no emotion, no unhappiness, no happiness, even the contentment of the third jhana and the peacefulness which is quite obvious in the third has to be dropped in order to get into the state where there is really only stillness. In this way, some perceptions arise through training and some pass away through training. The Buddha still keeps saying this one step-by-step -step training to this Puttapada who has asked him about it. It's a state beyond pleasure and pain, and it's purified by equanimity and mindfulness. The purification of equanimity and mindfulness is something which takes place before one gets into the stillness. This is also important to say, because the mindfulness, the one-pointedness, has to be absolute at that time. We can't waver. To get into fourth jhana, there's no wavering. One, two, three, we can still waver. So it's not so difficult. But on the fourth one, we mustn't waver. We must really be one-pointed. And uh, so that's mindfulness. And the equanimity has already to be there so that we have let go 
of all the pleasantness that was there before. We had pleasant, we had delightful sensations, we had joy, we had contentment and peacefulness, and we had to let go of all that in order to get to that stillness. And that stillness is then a true but subtle sense of neither happiness nor unhappiness. The subtle part of that, the true but subtle part, means that the recognition of it's neither happy nor unhappy is not um, our concern. Probably wants to hear the Dhamma. <laughs> One doesn't have that recognition, really. I'm neither happy nor unhappy. The recognition is really still. And afterwards, when we do the three steps afterwards, that too is impermanent. How did I get there? Unless we've already got a clear pathway and we don't have to uh, recollect that anymore. And what am I learning from it? Then we might be able to say I was neither happy nor unhappy. So that must be equanimity. But usually that is not even being said. What one says is stillness without the noticeable observer. And therefore, one realizes what that means. Now, with another um, having given up pleasure and pain, and with the disappearance of former gladness and sadness, enters and remains in the fourth jhana, which is beyond pleasure and pain and purified by equanimity and mindfulness. And one sits, suffusing the body with that mental purity and clarification so that no part of the body is untouched by it. The mental purity and the clarification are results. But if the mind is not one-pointed, one can't be in the fourth jhana, and one-pointedness makes, of course, for purity and for clarity. But that these are the resultants that we get. Now he gives a simile. Just as if a man were to sit wrapped from head to foot in a white garment so that no part of him was untouched by that garment, so his body is suffused with the white garment. No. Dot, dot, dot. So though his body is suffused with what? With equanimity and mindfulness, I should imagine. So the body is confused with equanimity and mindfulness. I wish they wouldn't do that with the dots. So that no part of the body is untouched by it. Again, we mustn't have a wrong impression of when it says so that no part of the body is untouched by it. If one has actually done it, one knows very well what it means. Um, it's not really a physical sensation. It just feels like an overall experience. It's impossible for the body to feel equanimity and mindfulness. And... Uh, also, clarity and purification. 
The mind feels all that. But it is a, um, a situation where one feels completely drowned in the stillness. And so one's whole being. I would prefer, if they wouldn't say body, they would say being. would make much more, much easier to understand and would make more sense too. So if we read being, it would be better. And one sits suffusing one's whole being with that mental purity and clarification so that no part of one's being is untouched by it. And that makes far more sense. And uh, I dare say that in Pali, I haven't got the Pali here, the word is Rupa. And Rupa does mean body. But it's quite possible that the Buddha used the word Rupa also instead of being. It's very possible because it makes much more sense. Now, the Buddha has something to say about how to get insight. And so, with the mind concentrated, purified, and cleansed, unblemished, free from impurities, malleable, workable, established, and having gained imperturbability, he directs and inclines his mind towards knowing and seeing. Concentrated, purified, cleansed, unblemished, free from impurities, malleable, workable, established, and imperturbable. All that are results of the jhanas. There's no way that one can have those states when the mind has become totally quiet. Now, here it is said after the fourth jhana. But in other discourses, the Buddha also mentions that one can direct one's mind also after the third. Definitely after number five, six, and seven. They are particularly useful for that. Eight isn't, and nine isn't either. So, to have a mind which is so concentrated that it's purified and cleansed, that it's unblemished, free from impurities, malleable, workable, and established, and imperturbable. Imperturbable is only possible if one has full concentration. Otherwise, one can still be perturbed. So then, one inclines the mind towards knowing and seeing. Knowing and seeing are words which are used the knowledge and vision of things as they really are. Now, knowledge and vision does not necessarily mean that there's a picture there. Not at all. It means the understood experience. Now, the vision is that in seeing, seeing within oneself, and the knowing is understanding it. And after the jhanas, one can say after any of them, but of course after third and fourth, more profoundly so, but after any of them. The mind is not only able, it's willing. It's willing to see a different reality, which at other times it isn't. The, the reality that there's nobody there is often counteracted by the question, well, if there's nobody there, then who's meditating? 
or who is getting perturbed and all those questions which means that the mind is revolting at the possibility that, this, that there really isn't anybody there and tries to get back to its usual stance. Since I'm here, must be me. That's on a level of relative uh, reality and relative truth, which does not bring any liberation or freedom, which can bring some psychological help if we use the purification of thought content and emotion. Why not? One should do that. But liberation, to be free and totally at ease and just be there and nothing else is only possible if we first understand the final goal of the Buddha's teaching and then draw nearer to it. Now, as you can see from this passage here, to draw nearer to the knowledge and vision, to the understood experience, we have to become calm. There's no way that a mind which is still rummaging around in the world can see the reality, the absolute reality of the situation within that there's only mind and body. There's nobody there. It's not possible to see that. We may be able to agree to it if we've read enough about the Buddha's teaching, have been indoctrinated enough, have been, so to say, brainwashed enough to hear, oh yes, anatta means there's nobody there. But to actually feel it within, with a mind which is still concerned with all the things that happen through the senses in meditation, can't be done because it just it's just the opposite of the reality that we're trying to look at the reality that we want to look at is an underlying purity of mind which is totally without any pulling towards having or pushing towards getting away from it's clear, translucent, part of creation, part of universal consciousness, does not have any individuality and doesn't tell us a thing. How can we recognize that when our senses are engaged and we obviously have to react to them in order to even know what's going on? When we know what's going on with our senses, we know what's going on in the world. Even if we don't dislike or like, we still have to know. So here, with a mind which is totally imperturbable, we have a chance of recognizing an inner experience. Now, Buddha says this, knowing and seeing. This, my body, is material, made up from the four great elements, born of mother and father, fed on rice and gruel, impermanent, liable to be injured and abraded, broken and destroyed. So the first instance is looking at the body, the four elements, 
and born of mother and father and fed on rice and gruel are cause and effect. Now, we wouldn't say rice and gruel. We might say uh, veg vegetables and fruit, but it doesn't matter, whatever it is that we're eating. Cause and effect. There's a cause for this body. We are, we are causing this body to be here. We're eating in order to maintain it. And our birth of mother and father was the arising of it. And that arising of the body, our body took place because we had the craving to exist. Otherwise there would be no arising. Everything that arises, arises because of the craving to be. It is not just pure chance. There's no chaos. It's all quite orderly, actually. So the first instance is to look at the body and see that it isn't me. And how do we find out that it isn't me? It certainly looks like me, doesn't it? And if we look in the mirror, we always know that must be me. But there are many ways we can get at that understanding that this is just the body. And people find that much easier than understanding that the mind is also not me. So maybe we should address the body first. And we could see that it's totally impermanent. It gets... changes all the time. Well, people take that in their stride. They got older, so they don't look quite as nice as they used to. But, what about this breath? Try to hold it, make it permanent. What happens? It choke and possibly die. Can't make it permanent. So, what else? When the mindfulness becomes established to the point of being able to get into contact with one's own body in a way which is more meaningful than just knowing the movements, one can feel a constant pulsation. Why is it doing that? All the cells in our body are constantly falling apart and coming back together again. After seven years, they've all fallen apart and have come back together again as a constant pulsing in the body. What else? We put food in. What happens? We have to digest it. We have to actually use it up within the body and excrete it. In, out. In, out. Same with drink. Nothing remains permanent. What we have eaten a week ago, it's gone. We've got to put in new stuff all the time. As long as we believe that I am the body, or the body is mine is more, more likely. This is me. The body is mine, this is me. 
our desires are not going to be diminished at all because most of our desires <laughs> while they come from the mind are geared towards the body you can check them out and see if that's right there's this um, wonderful notion I think probably quite strong in California it's supposed to be the uh, um, most famous place for the notion that the body can be made perfect. What the Buddha said about the body is that it doesn't get cancer. It is a cancer. Take a look at all the things that need to come out of the body in order to keep us healthy. And none of them are very appealing. I'm sure we wouldn't like to put them back in. <laughs> See the body for what it really is, a necessary part of being a human being. On other levels, we don't need such a body. Here, it's a necessary part, one that creates dukkha enough for us to do something about our dukkha, and one that we get hung up with on all levels trying to satisfy the cravings of the mind. We have talked about the four elements. We have done uh, contemplation on the four elements. Use it. Look at the four elements in yourself. Stand next to a tree and touch it. Or stand on the grass or whatever so that you can see there's no difference between materiality Materiality is, this is material, and this is what's being said, this is materiality, and the four elements are the f fun, uh, foundation for the existence. Now, connect again with the four elements and see the unsatisfactoriness of the body. I don't think anybody is immune, at least nobody who's here, from the unsatisfactoriness of the body. See it for what it is. Don't reject it, don't deny it, don't think it would be better if, but just see the unsatisfactoriness of the body. Then, seeing the impermanence of it means that we know our own mortality. Not as a theory, not as a hope that it isn't going to happen just yet, not as a future happening, but as a moment-to-moment -moment existing happening. We are dying from moment to moment. All our thoughts, all our emotions, our breath, all our body, is constantly in flux. There's a constant movement, just like it is in the universe, in and out, in and out. And this constant movement is a moment-to-moment -moment death and rebirth. When we know that, we can more likely also understand the rebirth 
that happens every morning, which is on a far larger scale than the moment-to-moment. And we don't ever have to contend with trying to figure out what happens after we die. It's happening now, every moment. And as the body gets older, the rebirth becomes more and more frail and fragile until it doesn't happen anymore. So mortality is now. Can anyone remember what they thought yesterday at 4.30 in the afternoon? It's impossible. We have no inkling what's happened. Never mind what happened in our last birth. We don't even know what happened in this one. We can remember some great, uh, exciting um, situations that occurred, but they are few and far between. The rest is all gone down in history, forgotten, finished. So, the body is material, made up from the four great elements, born of mother and father, fed on rice and gruel, impermanent, liable to be injured and abraded. We know how easy it is to have some sickness. I mean, we're all doing it. Well, not everybody, but practically all of us are coughing and sneezing and the rest of it. Well, that's not exactly pleasant. And it's easy to break it and destroy it. It's a cinch to destroy a body. And they're constantly being destroyed. Even if people aren't shooting, they're going at high speed along the freeway and then destroying bodies. It's very simple to destroy bodies. So, the first investigation is to see whether this body is really owned by anybody or whether it's an impersonal creation out of the craving for existence and the four elements, the food we eat, and that what we have just discussed. When we can see that, that it is cause and effect, that it isn't anything that has personality to it, we will recognize the fact also that we have no jurisdiction over it. None of us wanted to have a cough. Practically everybody's got it. Nobody would like to have knee pains, back pains, headaches, whatever it is. Practically everybody gets them. So what's wrong? Why, if it's me, and why, if I own it, can't I really be in charge of it? What's happening there? The idea that if the mind is totally purified, then the body will never give any trouble again, is another one of those um, so-called New Age wonders. The Buddha got sick and died. That's all that needs to be said, I think. And everybody who's ever been alive and isn't around now died. Everybody. And everybody who's around now is going to die. 
absolutely everybody. So if that were a true statement, this New Age one, why hasn't anybody ever been able to do it? It has no bearing in fact. It's not um, borne out by facts, and it isn't borne out by spiritual teaching. Again, it's a hope and a prayer. And obviously, one can look after one's body. Why not? It's just the same as looking after the uh, house one lives in. One does not uh, live with the illusion that the house one lives in is, is oneself, and one doesn't have the illusion that the house one lives in is going to be everlasting, or that even if we keep it absolutely clean, nothing is ever going to happen to it. We never have to make any repairs. <coughs> Nobody dreams like that. This is the house we live in. Sure, we should keep it nice and orderly. Why not? The best we can do, which will never be perfect. But the main thing is, look at it. Look at the body and see who owns it. What's happening to it? What's the matter with it? Why is it doing things I don't want it to do? And then... The next thing is, and this is my consciousness, which is bound to it and dependent on it. So what we actually are looking at here is the very first step of insight, that we've got two, mind and body, or called consciousness here. It doesn't matter, same meaning. And there's another um, idea going about some New Age wonder, that they are, how do they say, they are totally um, one, totally one. Well, that would be not only impossible, but not even very pleasant. Because if we had oneness, we could never have equanimity. Because if mind and body were one, how could we ever become equanimous towards our pains, our aches and pains? would not be possible. So it's lucky it isn't that way. The, um, those kind of teachings or uh, kind of uh, viewpoints are actually have good intentions. Unity consciousness. Unity consciousness is important, but not where it contradicts the actual facts Unity consciousness, where we feel at one with all other creatures, with nature, that's fine. Where we see no difference between me and anything else, because we've let go of this great idea, this strong idea, I should say, of personality. So, mind and body are two dependent upon each other. And this dependence arises because we're living in the human realm where such a body is necessary and, so to say, carries our mind around. We uh, do not have freedom from the body. There are, of course, other realms where, and we will hear about that, where there isn't the necessity to have such a body. But here we do have it, so we have to concern ourselves with it. 
They're dependent upon each other. The body carries the mind around. And the mind, unfortunately, is also depending upon the body. If we have very painful feelings, the mind becomes uh, irate, angry, negative, disliking, rejecting. If we have very pleasant sensations, the mind becomes grasping and clinging. So the mind reacts to the body's sensations. That, however, is not necessarily a permanent situation. The Buddha said about the unenlightened person having two things that bother them, namely body and mind, and the enlightened person having only one, namely the body. And the mind does not have to react. So there is this possibility of independence from the body sensations for an enlightened one. But at this stage we have the dependency. And we need to realize that there are two two things of which we consist. And if we look at the four elements of the body and we look at all the other causes for the body, we will see its parts. We can look at the four aspects of mind and see its parts. And if we do that, we will come nearer to the understanding that there's nobody owning it. The four parts of mind, I have mentioned them before, but not in this context. Four parts of mind are, first, the sense consciousness, the five senses. Everybody who has the five senses intact has sense consciousness. Seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling. Then, feeling which arises out of sense contact, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. Then perception, which we can also call labeling. When it's unpleasant, the label is pain. And then mental formation, which we can also call reaction. If the mind has said pain, the reaction usually is, I don't like that, or... I've got to get away from it. So we've got four parts of mind. Now it's very useful at this stage in one's practice to become aware of these four as they follow each other, cause and effect, sense contact, feeling, perception, reaction. And it's very helpful to do that in meditation or outside or both. Because this is how the Buddha advised to get the understanding, the knowledge and vision, the understood experience of that there's nothing within those four that makes up the me. The me is a thought, an idea, it's so deeply ingrained that we believe it wholeheartedly and also because everybody else believes it too. But 
Not only do we believe it, it's our mechanism for greed and hate. And since greed and hate are very easy, very simple, everybody knows that, we carry on in the same old way. It's the easy way to live, but it's not the happy way to live. So we need to examine not only the four elements in the body, its cause and effect, how it came about, whether we own it or not, but we have to examine the four parts of mind, how they arise and cease. You can do that in the sitting practice through the touch contact. The touch is the sense, uh, sense consciousness. You can also do it in, in the sitting if you hear anything. But you can do it, for instance, outside, looking at something. Become aware of the next step, the feeling. Most people never do. Most people only know the first step and the last. The sense contact and the reaction. Looks nice, I want it. Looks ugly, I'm going away. Can't stand it. Feels awful. So we have so quickly in a reaction that we miss out on the two in between. So when you have noticed your reaction, go back to the same sense contact once more. Become aware of it and try to notice the feeling which arises and then the mind explanation, the label, and then the reaction. And within those four, the feeling, the perception, the mental formation, and the sense contact, Try to find the feeler, the perceiver, the reactor. It's not possible. All we can know is the feeling, the perception, and the reaction, and the sense contact, of course. We can never find that there's someone doing that. The mind says, but it's me doing that. But that's an idea. Where is that doer? Where can you find the doer? Because it's actually possible to notice that because these four are an automatic progression. There's nothing to be done. They just happen. So watch them happen. And if you want, you can also use your determination to stop at any one of these points particularly before the perception and then you will see that one doesn't have to react but as you do that the mind will say well I must be the one that has the determination find that one find the one that is having it there is nobody to be found. There is determination, which is a mental factor. It's very important to investigate more than once, many times, because within those khandas, those aggregates, lies the illusion. And some people will say, well, 
it must be my thinking. And others will say, it must be my feeling. And others will say, it must be the observer or the one that has the willpower. Well, then ask yourself if any of these are you, and that's the usual thing. Where is that one when there's no observer, no willpower, when there is nothing like that at all? Where is that me then when any of these supposed me's have disappeared? Where is it? What's it doing? It needs concentration and also a great willingness to come to the bottom of human existence to really understand get to the bottom of it and not stay on the superficial level where we like and dislike if we have liked and disliked long enough we are probably at this point able to see that there must be a different solution so we have here the instruction of the Buddha and I'm very keen for you to notice that and to note that that this is the instruction to do after the concentrated meditation if you aren't getting into the jhana do it after you've been concentrating it's much better to do it after a concentration in meditation because otherwise it becomes an intellectual exercise and the mind might be quite happy to agree particularly because it wants to get out of all this it doesn't want to continue it just agrees and says it's okay it's fine you know so when it is an intellectual exercise it brings nothing absolutely nothing it only brings benefits when that investigation becomes a realization then it brings great benefit when the it's like an aha experience the mind says aha and then don't think that it's you saying aha because that too wouldn't work There's also a simile for the fourth jhana. Now I'll read that out to you. Huh? It is just as no. It's a simile for the inside. Sorry. It is just as if there were a gem, a barrel, pure, excellent, well cut into eight facets, clear, bright, unflawed, perfect in every respect strung on a blue, yellow, red, white, or orange cord. A man with good eyesight, taking it in his hand and inspecting it, would describe it as such. In the same way, with the mind concentrated, purified and cleansed, unblemished, one directs the mind towards knowing and seeing, and then one knows that the body is made of the material and the consciousness is dependent upon it. The uh, simile for the fourth jhana was the white garment. This is the simile for the inside. The inside which is clear, bright, unflawed, perfect in every respect. And it needs good eyesight. Good eyesight is not meant to be optical. 
it means that inner scene. A relationship of that which one is investigating to one's inner being. There has to be that connection. Realization only arises if the mind investigates. The mind has to do that, investigates. Who is it that's having the sense contact? Who is reacting? Or whatever one is investigating. But as one investigates, there has to be made that connection. Connection to an inner feeling. The inner feeling may again and again say, I feel me. And as you see that over and over again, just investigate again. Investigate again whether there can be that realization within that I feel me, which is quite true actually, one feels me, I feel me is a mistaken view. It does not hold water when we investigate it at length and in detail. So we investigate the elements, the causes for the body, the ownership of the body, the impermanence of the body, our own mortality. Any one of these, or all of them, if we really want to know, and we investigate the four parts of mind as they arise successively and find out who is doing all that. And who is doing all that very often against my will. Why is it happening when apparently I much, would much rather be in the fourth jhana? So who's doing all that? What is it? This is the, the way we can get nearer to an understanding what the Buddha really taught. Because if we just stay on the surface of that or at the beginning of it, we never get the whole picture. We still have to take the whole journey obviously, but we need to have at least the road map in its completeness so that we know where we're going. And then if we don't think we would like to go there, maybe we would like to find a different road map. But the promise of the Buddha is that if we go the whole way, no more dukkha, ever again. So if we have enough confidence in that, we might like to continue with our roadmap.